New Reads November is a sacred tradition here on the SSR podcast. Every year for the month of November only, we turn our attention away from the throwback reads that we hold near and dear to our hearts and focus instead on YA and middle grade books published more recently. Today, we kick off the fifth installment of this special series. Welcome to New Reads November. We begin with a discussion about Melinda Lowe's Last Night at the Telegraph Club, a multi-award-winning YA novel that many of you requested for New Reads November 2022. In Last Night at the Telegraph Club, main character Lily struggles to navigate life in 1950s San Francisco as the teenage daughter of Chinese immigrants during the Red Scare. Lily's world is turned even further upside down by the dissolution of her friendship with long-term bestie Shirley, threats that her father might be sent out of the country, and a budding relationship with a classmate named Kath. The Telegraph Club, a hotspot beyond the boundaries of Lily's Chinatown bubble where male impersonator Tommy Andrews graces the stage on a regular basis, becomes a hub of self-discovery for her, but it also makes things very complicated. The cover of Last Night at the Telegraph Club is absolutely covered in award and prize medals, and it deserves every one. On this episode, my guests and I do a lot of fangirling about the book, but we also have conversations about the immigrant experience, xenophobia, girls in STEM, what it means to be the quote, ideal American woman in Lily's time, the importance of clothing to her identity, microaggressions, intersectional spaces, and banning books. Hatred against the queer community and racism, specifically violence toward Asian American folks, are also discussed, so please listen with care. This week, we are lucky enough to have author Lily Chu on the podcast, and in our conversation, I did my very best to keep things straight between guest Lily and main character Lily. Guest Lily loves ordering the second cheapest wine, wearing perfume all the time, and staying up far too late with a good book. She writes romantic comedies set in Toronto with strong Asian characters. The stand-in is her debut rom-com. The audiobook, released through Audible, is performed by Philippa Sue of Hamilton fame. It spent multiple weeks at number one in Audible Top Plus listens in the all and romance categories, and it was named one of the best of 2021 by Audible. In print, the stand-in was named Target's Book Club Pick for May, as well as an Amazon Book of the Month and Apple Best Books of May. Her second rom-com, The Comeback, is about an ambitious lawyer who falls for a K-pop idol. It's out on audio on Audible. Learn more about Lily's work at lilychuauthor.com and follow her on Twitter and Instagram at lilychuauthor. Lily Chu is also the first ever guest in our brand new Patreon-exclusive Rapid Fire Q&A series. Starting today, all SSR patrons, whether they support the podcast with $1, 5 or $10 per month, We'll have access to a special mini podcast every week featuring fun questions and answers with my podcast guest. Patrons will still get to enjoy all of the other bonuses that came before, like membership in the SWR book club, an invite to our Discord channel, bonus episodes, newsletters, and more. Plus, you get the satisfaction of knowing that you are helping to keep this independent one-woman show going strong. I love the Patreon community, and it would mean so much to me to expand it to include you. Learn more at www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast, or go to www.ssrpodcast.com and click support at the top of the page. You can also support the show by sharing about it on your favorite social media platform. 
The show is at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter, and on Facebook when you search the SSR Podcast or the SSR Book Club. Leaving a five-star rating or review also goes a long way, since it helps bring more eyes and ears to the podcast and, in turn, makes it easier for me to secure fantastic guests like Lily every week. This episode is brought to you by the AHK Writing Community, a project I started back in April in hopes of connecting aspiring fiction writers and sharing what I learned in my MFA program. Whether you think writing short stories could be a fun hobby, or you've already written half of a novel, you are welcome in this group. I offer accountability, workshopping, prompts, writing advice, sharing challenges, and lots of writing discussion. All of our founding members have stuck around since the beginning, which I like to think is a testament to what they're taking from the experience. Check it out at www.patreon.com ahkwriters and feel free to send me a DM if you have any questions. I can't wait to meet you and to read your work. I'm lucky enough to be partnered with Inkwell Threads to bring you 20% off on all kinds of bookish swag. With the holiday season now creeping up, I encourage you to treat yourself to a t-shirt, sweatshirt, or a tote bag. Shop the whole collection with me at www.inkwellthreads.com ssrpod or use code ssrpod at checkout to cash in on that 20% off offer. There are new styles dropping all the time and everything is cute and high quality. Time to get into New Reads November 2022. Let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hoff-Kosick freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Lily. Welcome to SSR. Hi, thank you for having me. It is the first episode of New Reads November 2023. This is a beloved tradition here on the SSR podcast, and I couldn't be happier to have you along with me to get things started. Thanks. I am very, very excited to talk about this book. Okay, so the book in question is called Last Night at the Telegraph Club. It is by Melinda Lowe. And listeners, I have to tell you that when I put out my little question box to get requests from all of you for this year's round of New Reads November... A lot, a lot, a lot of people requested this one. And I feel like every year that I've done New Reads November, there's like one book that is, it just feels like an imperative pick. Like we have to, we have to squeeze this one in. We have to make sure this is a priority. Last year, it was Camp by Elsie Rosen. This year, I think it's probably Last Night at the Telegraph Club. And so Lily, when you picked it right off the bat, I was very excited because I knew that we would have a chance to dive in. I was excited to see it on the list. Can you tell me if there was anything that you knew about Last Night at the Telegraph Club before you read it or if you had done any research before picking it up yourself? So I had heard about the book. Full disclosure, in my head, I actually had a tiny bit mixed up with a different <laughs> book. But I, when I started reading the back, I was like, oh, this is amazing. And, you know, I actually, it's been a while since I've read a YA. Yeah. Or even like books with teenage pr- protagonists. And this was just so layered and so dense and I'm so happy we actually get a chance to talk about it because I do feel it's one of those books that I read it 
but then I, I was like, did I miss stuff? What else is in there that I need to tease out? Because I'm, there's so much in it that I'm, I'm almost entirely sure that you're going to say something and be like, oh my God, that went totally over my head. How could I miss it? Because it is, it's so good. And also towards the end, I was doing some speed reading because I was like, what's happening? What's happening? What's happening? Yeah. Well, my full disclosure is that I find New Reads November really stressful because the books that are written for teens today are much longer and more dense than the books that were written for oh, teens yeah. in years gone by. And so usually when I'm doing my podcast reading, I can do it parallel to my fun reading, to my day job. It's not that much of a time crunch. New Reads November is like a whole other situation because these books are so long. And so when I picked up last night at the Telegraph Club, as excited as I was because of the amazing things I'd heard about it, I was like, oh, this is a really long book. I happen to have four recordings this week, which like, I don't even know how that happened. And I was like, okay, I have to get in the zone. I was flying to visit my friend in Texas to meet her new baby. And I was like, I don't know when I'm going to have time to do this reading and really give it the attention that it deserves. But it pulled me in so much that I read most of it on the plane to and from Texas. And that's not that many hours, but like I was so invested in it and so head down in this story that it did not feel like the dense read that I expected it might be just from looking at it. Yeah, and I totally agree. I When I was reading it, it's so beautifully written that the layers, and I was taking, usually I don't take notes when I read, like I just, I read, but because we were talking about it, I was paying, trying to make, pay more attention to certain aspects of the book. So I, so I had something to say, <laughs> but I, like, I did, I said, I'm like, I'm going to read for an hour. Three hours later, I was like, oh, I should probably get to bed. Yeah. But it's, it's so excellently done. And the characterization is so amazing that I too was kind of pulled in and felt it was a much easier read than when I looked back, I realized it actually was. Yeah because it's just so well done. Yeah, it's beautifully done. So the author is Melinda Lowe, as I mentioned earlier on. This is actually her sixth book, but I don't know about you, Lily. I actually hadn't heard about Melinda until last night the Telegraph Club started to make waves and make waves it did. It won like every award that you can win in the YA category. It won the National Book Award um, in 2021. The book initially published in 2021 and then came out in paperback in 2022. Interestingly and importantly, Last Night at the Telegraph Club was the first ever YA book with a queer female protagonist to win the National Book Award. So that's huge. It also won the Stonewall Jackson Book Award. Um, it was a Prince Honor winner. It won a bunch of other things. Like you can barely even read the title on the cover because there are so many stickers and well-earned medals on here. Yes, uh, the cover I have has four. Yeah. <laughs> and they, they partly cover the title. And can I just say that the cover is gorgeous too. Gorgeous. I love this cover. I hope that Melinda Lowe has this cover blown up as a print on her wall. And then I also hope that she has like the like real medals. I don't I don't know if you get an actual medal when you win these awards, but I hope that she has, if she hasn't received them, maybe she's made them for herself because I want whatever I'm seeing in front of me to like be blown up huge on her wall because she deserves every little bit of it. Agreed. I'd wear them around my neck, kind of like a, an Olympian. Yes, I love that idea. And then you would jingle when you walk, like my dog with all of his yes. little ID tags. <laughs> um, okay, so last night at the Telegraph Club. It is set in 1954, San Francisco. Having been to San Francisco only one time myself and really like it was just it was such an ideal trip that my husband and I took to the Bay Area a couple of years ago. And so anytime I get to read 
about San Francisco or even watch a show or a movie about San Francisco, I'm so excited because I have such great memories of being there. And I think baseline, the way that Melinda Lowe has written about the setting in this is gorgeous. The way she writes about the food, the way she writes about the neighborhoods, amazing. And then on top of that, you have all of the intensely researched historical context. And there's a really well done author's note in this book that goes into all of the research that Melinda did to write this. Um, I also found some other resources and interviews with her about how she went about doing all of this because not only did she have to learn about 1950s San Francisco, she also had to learn about 1950s Chinatown in San Francisco and what it was like to be the child of Chinese immigrants in 1950s San Francisco and what it was like to be the child of Chinese immigrants in San Francisco who's queer and and sort of all of these different layers. So um, she embarked on quite a project doing this. We meet Lily, who is a senior in high school. And I'm curious, Lily, we have two Lilies here. So (laughs) how did you relate, if at all, to the Lily that we see on the page? Did she remind you of your teenage self in any way? She did in some ways. So the Lily in the book is fascinated with science, science and space, which for the time, and it's made very clear in, in, in others' comments to her, is not usual or expected or desirable in a, a girl. And I think, you know, when I was growing up too, like having interests were that are a bit out of the norm. I think we all had that feeling of being a bit, something that we love so much and is so interesting to us. Having other people make fun of it or tease us about it, that really hit home. So in the book, her best friend is named Shirley. And Shirley is, in a lot of ways, I feel Lily's foil. Um, she's not planning to go to college. You know, she works in her family restaurant. She's interested in boys and what I'm, I'm doing air quotes here what we would consider like stereotypical girl yeah. things and I big quotes big air quotes there of course especially in the 50s like she wants to be especially this ideal in the 50s, yeah. 50s American woman yes and I think you actually said two really interesting things there that are so integral to the book and that is the ideal American woman like it's the the story starts with a prologue where the two girls are, I think they're 13 at the yeah. time, 13, 14. Mm-hmm. They're watching a beauty show, a beauty pageant. And it's the Miss Chinatown beauty pageant. But they're kind of watching it in different ways, given the characters and who they are. So Shirley is thinking like, I she's she wants to go on that stage. She wants to be that all-American girl. And I highly recommend you actually read the author's note first. Yeah. I wish I had read the author's note first because there's so much history that I, I missed in the writing because of the nuances, because I'm not American. So I don't know a lot necessarily about like specific time periods in the political environment at the times. But the characters, in particular Lily's family in the book, very, very concerned with being seen to be full-blooded Americans. And the language in it is very interesting because sometimes Lily refers to white people as American. And that separation between who is American, who gets to be American, who gets to be considered American, are you Chinese or are you American? And how are you perceived? And what does that mean for where you fit in society? Where do you fit politically? How, you know, how do people treat you? I think is just, it runs through the whole book and it's absolutely fascinating. I love that you that you explained that because I think that that scene in the prologue with the beauty pageant, it's it's almost like a metaphor for so much and, and for so many different layers of the book as it continues because we see these these women who are from Chinatown trying so hard to be this ideal American woman. 
And Lily is expected to be that ideal American woman. And that butts up against the identity that she ultimately finds herself wanting to share with others because that's who she is. It also butts up against like some of the things that her family is just going to have to manage because they are immigrants and yet they want to they want so badly to be that ideal American family, as you said, that they have to go to extra lengths to like make sure that any difference that others might perceive, those differences have to be hidden. So this like pageantry, I, I can't think of a better way really to to demonstrate this sense of like the performative nature of identity for so many people. And in this case, of course, we have like lots of different levels of that. But if you're performing an identity of any kind, like it's a pageant, it's a constant pageant, like that's what it is to try to perform. I mean, if you take it to 2022, like social media culture, like everything's a pageant, nothing could be more pageant-esque than the way that we try to portray our identities in these different packages. And in the 1950s, Lily and her family are doing that in much lower tech ways. Yeah. And I, I'm not usually a huge fan of prologues. Mm. But this prologue set the scene for every theme going through that book, that, I, that idea of identity and pageantry, women as a consumable, shall we say. There's actually, in that prologue, it's really interesting because Lily is, they're having a picnic while this beauty pageant's going on, and she's eating these chicken wings at the same time. So this, and, and simultaneously, there's this, um, these men who are just very clearly like, ogling these women up on stage and this the idea of women as consumable as something for for people to take in i thought was really really beautifully done and then you know the idea of wanting to be the perfect pretty woman what does it be to be a woman in that community at the time and it was to be this version of yourself that was perfect hair and you know, perfect curves and saying what you're expected to say and acting the way you're expected to act because in a pageant, everything is very planned. You know, you are expected to walk to the stage and do your speech and you're expected to go back. And I think those expectations, you really feel them through Lily's perspective because she knows what she has to do with her life. She knows what she's expected to do with her life. And she, I think at this point, she's still not quite sure. She knows it's not really she doesn't think the same way as as her friend Shirley. She's she knows she's looking at things in a different way, but she hasn't quite been able to articulate to herself exactly what that difference is. Mm-hmm. And there's a scene shortly after that, um, just a few chapters into the book, I think, where Lily goes shopping with her mom for new school clothes, and I think that is an extension of what you're talking about, which is this realization that Lily's mom is so obsessed. And rightfully so, because there are high stakes if this family steps out of line, which we'll talk about shortly. Um, She's so obsessed with keeping her kids in line and making them look the way that she thinks they should look so that they are acceptable um, and that they will just fit into American culture. Lily does go to a school with a lot of white kids. There's like a, a contingent of Chinatown kids, as she calls them, that hang out. But it's it's a mixed group of kids. And so the idea here is for her to like just kind of blend in with everybody else. And Lily, when they go shopping, like has some other outfits that she wants to try on and different styles that the sales associates suggest. And her mother is like, no, like this is what you're going to wear. You're going to wear this type of dress, this type of skirt. 
And there's not really any room to question that. And of course, in 2022, like, it's easy to look at that and think, oh, that's so like, you're being so controlling, you're not letting your child explore her personal creativity or to express herself in any way. But A, like there are financial limitations on these families. And if you can only afford one or two outfits, like it's going to be the one or two outfits that your parents approve of. And also there are some serious appearances that need to be kept up so that this family can quite literally stay together in the United States. Yeah. And and the idea of clothes is in a f- quite a few scenes, you know, as Lily is learning about herself, there's a lot of comments about the clothes and what clothes people are choosing and what's appropriate for a certain setting, what makes you comfortable in a certain setting, almost at every major scene, I mm-hmm. think, now that I'm thinking about it, they all have like a, a clothes as armor, clothes as protective, clothes as belonging element to them. That's true. I had to Google like some of the styles that were referenced. Me too. too. Regal skirt. Yeah, I was like, what is that? I don't even have ever heard of that. A shirtwaist. I'm yeah, like, what, what is, is a shirtwaist? shirtwaist? Which is, it's a shirt. It's, it's like a, a blouse. Yeah, it's literally just a blouse. But yeah, I mean, and then of course, there's this huge distinction between like women who wear pants and when women wear pants and what yes. type of pants are appropriate and what kind of shirt you wear with said pants. Like there are just so many different rules kind of unspoken in society about like what your clothes indicate about who you are. And Lily is is being kept in a pretty tight box so that she can protect her family's livelihood and, and their identity and their safety because it's 1954 and there's a lot of suspicion, particularly about Asian Americans. And this comes to a head when Lily goes to a picnic with her friend Shirley And the picnic, as far as Lily knows, is really just a gathering of, I believe it's called the Chinese Democratic Youth Association. Yeah, I think that's it. Or some some combination of those words. And it seems just like a fun time. Like they're meeting with their friend Will. They're going to go to the park and have some lunch. Lily figures out pretty quickly that Shirley has a crush on this guy named Calvin, who happens to be Will's older brother. And Lily's like, okay, like now I understand why it was so important to Shirley that we come to this. And before long, after this picnic, Lily is pulled aside by her parents and they ask her about this event and they explain to her that this youth league uh, is actually a group of communist sympathizers. And in 1954, there was a lot of concern about communism in the United States. And Lily's dad, who is a doctor, was actually questioned by the FBI in connection with his care for a boy who Lily ultimately finds out is actually Calvin, the boy that she, that Shirley has a crush on. And they asked him if he worked on any communists and if he like, you know, treated any communists, if he knew of any of them. And he refused to talk to them about it because he is so loyal to his Chinatown community and he does not want anybody to get in trouble. And because of that, they actually revoke his citizenship papers, even though he fought for the U.S. in the war. He is an American citizen. They take his citizenship papers away. And that, of course, puts the whole family in danger. And he actually still has family back in China. So that's all the more reason, at least Lily's mom says, that like the government in the U.S. would be suspicious or like have reason to send Lily and her family to China. And Lily has this really, I would say, like mature conversation with her parents. It's a kind of conversation that I can imagine like being a teenager. You're like, oh, I'm invited into this like super high, high stakes adult conversation 
Lily's mom says to her, you're exactly the kind of girl they would try to recruit. You don't notice they're putting ideas into your head. And her dad says, I don't believe you had any bad intentions. You've never shown any interest in politics, but the things you do can reflect badly on others. We're living in a complicated time. People are afraid of things they don't understand, and we need to show that we are Americans first. And mom says, they're using these investigations as an excuse to deport Chinese. They took his papers, so now he has no record of his citizenship, and he has family in China. You have family in China. You've never met them, but that doesn't mean anything to the FBI. And you were at the picnic, even if you had no idea who they are. It doesn't look good. And I do think it's worth noting at this point that uh, Melinda Lowe has been quoted talking about the fact that this book uh, really gained traction and attention by the publishing world. Um, and it, it finally got picked up uh, during the Trump presidency, that it, it had been written for many years before that. And it was ultimately set into motion because of what was going on here in America during that awful time. And of course, there was such an uptick in hate crimes against Asian Americans. It was just awful. So I think this was such a timely book, unfortunately, when it was published in 2021. And all of these pieces contribute to that and, and why it needed to be part of the conversation. The book set in the 1950s. I didn't see every element in it yeah. is something we see today. You know, there's so much that hasn't changed in the last, oh my God, 70 oh. years. 70. <laughs> I don't know why I thought the 1950s was was less than that. <laughs> I guess I'm somewhat stuck in like, you know, it's always the year 2000. Yeah. But the the fear that, well, you know what? I will say fear, like fear and trepidation and excitement and curiosity she has about realizing that she's she's queer and she likes girls in a way she knows Shirley doesn't like girls. The ideas of race and community, racism, there are so there are so many microaggressions in this book parts were like really hard to read actually because they're just so casually tossed out there but you know every like women women's women what we should be like in society like you know pretty and attractive and accommodating you know everything that she said 1950s she, um, san francisco chinatown is something that i definitely see when i look around today which is just so sad, actually. Like, you know, you think a lot of this would have changed. And through the eyes of the character of Lily, because she's experiencing it, and she's experiencing it with that rush of intense emotion that you get when you're a teenager. Mm, yeah. Um. So everything is heightened to make for some very uncomfortable reading at times, because it's so intense. And what she's feeling is so intense. And for me, because I'm older. Oh, this is actually something I really want to talk to you about. Yeah. You know, it, it brought me back to a lot of those like high school times when you were like, everything was so huge. And for her, it's not just she feels that huge. They are legitimately huge yeah. issues that she's tackling with. It's not just like, oh, Bobby didn't return my note or whatever. She's she's really grappling with gigantic changes in her life that are going to change her forever or could potentially change her forever. Yeah, and I think that like what is fascinating here is that a lot of the situations that Lily finds herself in sort of on a more micro level are things that any reader could relate to. Like if we go back to the clothes thing, for example, like I'm sure teens in any decade can relate to the feeling of like being exasperated because your parents won't let you wear what you want to wear for whatever reason. But the stakes in Lily's case are so much more real. So I think that speaks to what you're saying other Lily, guest a Lily, because 
you know, like, yes, I felt in my bones, like Lily's frustration when she was at that store and not understanding why her mother is treating her like a baby and like not giving her the respect that she deserves um, in choosing the way she wants to present herself to the world. And I could certainly never begin to pretend that I understand like what the stakes might be if Lily does not fit that mold. We all, I think, can remember a time when our parents didn't approve of people that we were hanging out with when we were teenagers, much like Lily's parents don't approve of the fact that Lily is hanging out with Calvin and this league that we find out are communist sympathizers. We we know that feeling, like we know that you get indignant about that. And at the same time, many of us cannot even begin to imagine like what it would feel like to know that if you actually go against your parents' wishes and hang out with that crowd, like you're not just going to get grounded. You're not just going to get in trouble. Your father could literally be like sent away. Your family could be split up. So I, I think that it's really just like sort of those two sides of it. It's like it's relatable enough that you feel those feelings because there is that intensity of teenage emotion. And at the same time, it, it's completely removed from so many of our experiences today. Yeah, I agree. And then can we talk about when she meets Kath? Yes, let's talk about Kath. Okay. So the romantic interest in this book is Kathleen Miller, who has actually, she and Lily have known each other for a while in school, and they're both in the same math group. And Kath wants to be a pilot. Lily is Chinese, Kath is white. And they're in a class, I can't remember, it was kind of like a goals yeah. class like how to be an adult class I think yeah I think it's called senior goals like they That's yeah. It. yeah 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 and Kath is put in um, a group with Lily Shirley who's Lily's best friend and Will who is the boy and this is when Lily first kind of starts taking notice of Kath in general Shirley is always on Lily's case about how science is silly you know why don't you have pictures of marlon brando on your wall like all that kind of stuff and kath is like science isn't silly we're in the same math class science is cool math is cool i want to be a pilot it's cool that you want to be in science when you grow up and so she's very from the get-go very accepting of lily's authentic self you know who she wants to be unlike shirley who is like shirley is the basically the toe the line friend yeah you know i expect you to be like this kath I find gives Lily the space in every way to start exploring. There's this strong like girls in STEM energy, which I yeah. love. And I think you love that, especially because I mean, even when I, I was growing up and I grew up in the nineties and even in the nineties, like we weren't talking about girls in STEM, you know, of course everybody was encouraged to learn, but I think there were still a lot of assumptions made about the fact that the boys in my class would probably be great at math and science and the girls would be great at English and social studies. So I think that's really relevant to the conversations that we're having in 2022 and 2023 and beyond about the importance of making sure that people of all genders are encouraged to explore the fields that are interesting to them. And there's such a need, of course, for the best minds out there to be pioneering in the science and engineering spaces for us today. So yeah, I thought that was cool. I also think, um, you know, something that I related to so much in this book and something that I think is like a universal experience is this feeling of like diverging interests with your friends and how hard that feeling is. Yeah. You know, Shirley and Lily have been friends for a long time. And Lily has been part of this core Chinatown group for a long time. She feels safe there. These are all her peers who can relate to a lot of her cultural experiences, 
They are othered in the same way. Lily, as you mentioned, this book is just like loaded with microaggressions that are so hard to read. And I'm a white person. And so even I found them hard to read, having never been on the receiving end of those kinds of microaggressions. And I took notice of all of them. And I'm sure I missed a lot of them, having not experienced those microaggressions in my life. But they've experienced all of that together. And when you are at that part of your teenage life when everybody's potentially going to go their separate ways. And even if you're not going your separate ways, you are becoming an adult. And so your sort of true interests, true passions, true driving forces are coming to the surface. It's hard to tamp those down just that you can like stay in the box that your old friends want you to be in. And I remember feeling like that sometimes as a teenager, like it's, it's painful when you realize, oh, these friends that I've had for so long that have made me feel safe for these reasons, no longer make me feel that way. And then you're kind of fighting that battle with yourself because you sort of like don't want to leave that comfort zone. And you're also fighting with them because you don't agree with the things they have to say. It's very complicated. And Again, the stakes for Lily are so much higher because we're talking about her identity and her like her personhood because she wants to be able to be who she is and love who she loves. Yeah, and Chinatown is very much set as uh, an island almost like in in the city. Uh, and honestly, it's been last time I went to San Francisco was I think it was eight. So uh, I don't know much about it. But in in the book, Chinatown is both, as you say, like her comfort zone but it's also her cage. So Kath is the one who kind of opens the door. And there's a few scenes where Lily kind of makes a comment, like, you know, she hadn't been this far to Chinatown or, you know, when she and Kath are kind of first getting to know each other, they're exploring around, but they're not doing it in Chinatown. Like there comes a point where she brings Kath in and she's wondering how she's trying, she's seeing her home through Kath's eyes um, and wondering how it is. But Kath is very much her entry into a wider world, both emotionally, um, sexually, and physically, mm-hmm. because it's with Kath that I think she starts exploring. Did you find that as well? Or am I like... No, I found that. And I thought it was really cool to watch Lily in turn open up Kath's world and Kath's perspective, because Kath comes from what seems to be a very traditional Italian and Irish Catholic family. And so there's one point where Kath brings Lily along to some of her places and shares her culture with with Lily. And then Lily does the same. And Lily like tries to bring Kath to her neighborhood and show her her favorite places to get ice cream, but it's ginger ice cream. So it's like a little bit different than what Kath knows from her life outside of Chinatown. So I think, yes, Kath invites Lily to leave Chinatown, but she also in a weird way, like invites Lily to open up Chinatown to her in a different way and like break some of those barriers down so that people who are from outside that community can still like share in that culture that she loves so much with them. Yes. And on another note, those scenes when they're getting to know each other are just so, they're so lovely. lovely. Like they're just, they're so sweet in that, you know, those first, you know, kind of tentative touches and catching each other's eyes. And it's just, Oh, it's just, it's, it's so wonderfully done. Like, it's just so like, oh, I thought that their whole arc was so well done. And Uh, so intense, like from those first touches to like the spicier encounters that we get with them later on, like I felt it all. And it, even though my experience is not exactly the same as Lily's, of course, like it brought me back to different phases of early relationships that I was in, in high school and college. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I felt cast, right. This is going to sound a bit weird. Sometimes I'm reading a book yeah. and there's a love interest character. And you're like, don't trust them. Yeah. There's, they're going to hurt Been you. There. Like you just get that vibe. Right. And Kath feels like just so yes. solid and trustworthy that, you know, she was so careful about Lily all the time because Kath is slightly more experienced. Like the, one of the big scenes is the, the telegraph yes. club. So the, the whole telegraph club element is Lily sees an ad for a male impersonator named Tommy Andrews, who is going to be performing at the telegraph club. And she just feels this feeling, this very, she's like, whoa, she rips it out. She hides it in a book with her ripped out picture of Catherine Hepburn wearing pants and these three female pilots. And she occasionally looks at it. And then at school one day, Kath sees mm -hmm. it. That starts their very, very careful and cautious, you know, are you kind of like me right. discussion because they're both so delicate about it. And then it, it kind of ends up with Kath has been to this telegraph club and Lily sneaks out to go. And that is like, oh, oh my God. That was a very intense scene because I could just, my heart was racing when I was reading it because of that, that sense of that memory of like sneaking out to do stuff and you could get caught. And for her, she's out in a big city and it's like night and she's going, she's underage and she's going to this bar where, you know, we, the reader know what kind of bar it is and what that means in that particular environment. Lily doesn't, she's very naive about a lot of stuff because she hasn't, she doesn't have the vocabulary. She doesn't have the experience to know about this world that she's, that she's trying to enter because it's so hidden. Like it's so underground. It's so hidden from her usual life. Yeah. I mean, I can't believe she pulled that sneaking out thing off oh, Mul and oh multiple times. Oh my gosh. Multiple times. Her parents must've been really exhausted because they never heard her leaving. This is a small apartment. Like she lives in like yeah. a closet in their very small apartment and she somehow manages to make it out time and time again and they do not wake up. So she must have very gentle tiptoeing talents. Like a cat. But I will say the one thing that bothered me about that yeah. scene is she goes to the bar and it's smoky and sweaty and perfumey <laughs> and, and smells like beer. And like, I remember going to bars like that and coming home and you reeked. Yeah. It was in your skin and it was in your hair and it was in your clothes uh, until you showered. And I thought for sure the mom was going to be like, why do you reek like, yeah. you know, why do you reek like bar? Because it's such a distinctive smell. Yeah, it's true. I that, There were a couple of moments where I was like, I feel like maybe you should take a shower or a bath or whatever. Yes. The Telegraph Club thing was so fascinating to me for so many reasons. I think, and this is going to sound weird. Sometimes I think that we in like the 21st century, or at least like my generation in the 21st century, like we feel like we invented all of the badass things, you know? Like we're like, oh, like people before, like nobody ever used like fake IDs before us. Like nobody <laughs> did these things before us. And that's actually something that I read in a couple of the interviews with Melinda Lowe, which I will link in the show notes. But she talks about how like people in 2022 often like forget that there were queer people in the 1950s. Like there's this sense that all of these things that we now view as so out there, um, even though they were like taboo, maybe even 20 years ago, like, oh, that this is like a new thing. And that's why some of these groups are so undocumented. Like she talks about how most of the queer rep that she's read it's all contemporary. And that was part of why she wanted to address a more historical period and, and find out what it would actually be like to be a queer woman, a queer woman of color in the 1950s.
But then I, even as a white woman, I'm like, oh, wait, like they had fake IDs in the 50s? Like, I didn't think that that was a thing. Like, I, because I think about like my grandmother and, you know, not my, my grandmother would have been too old, but like, I think about, you know, did my grandmother in the 30s have a fake ID? Like she didn't because she was way too straight laced, but like, <laughs> oh, I guess she probably could have gotten one. But I, I think sometimes we forget that in every generation, people were were sort of playing on the edges of what was acceptable and what was allowed. And so I liked to see these young people breaking some rules that I guess I just like forget that you had to break even back then. Yeah. And I love how her ID, I think it's, it's either anime lee or anime wong or something and cat's like is that okay <laughs> and lily's like it's like you called me like jane smith yeah. but whatever yeah <laughs> fine whatever Kath. and the telegraph club is such an important place for Kath. it's such an important place for lily and for Kath. and it got me thinking about this idea of like safe inclusive spaces and why they're so important and i think one of the things that this book has received the most well-earned praise for is it's intersectionality and the way that it portrays queerness and the immigrant experience and all of these things at the same time. And all of that kind of is like spit out when you're in the Telegraph Club, because at first when Lily gets to the Telegraph Club, I was like, okay, great. Like she's going to get to be her full self. She's starting to have this sexual awakening. She's going to look around her. She's going to get to watch Tommy Anderson perform. She's going to see all of these queer women relating to each other. And maybe she'll begin, she'll begin to understand that part of herself and she's going to feel safe. Great. But then the Telegraph Club because it's removed from her Chinatown bubble, is also the place where she is on the receiving end of so, so, so many racist microaggressions. People commenting that she's a China doll. People saying, oh, like, we don't see a lot of, and this is a word in the book, not a word that I would use. We don't see a lot of Orientals here. They ask her if she speaks English. So it's no longer a safe space because she, in some ways, can be her full self. But she is now pulling back because she's not used to being spoken to in the way that these white women are speaking to her. And so now she can't be her full self because in her various identities, she can't show up in every way she wants to. And I just, I it's, I think there's a margin in my book where I in all caps have like safe spaces underlined three times because it's something that I wanted to talk about. And just like the importance of, of finding places where people can feel safe, included, and fully expressive um, in all of their all of their nuances. Yeah, I, I felt the same way about I also had a note about safe spaces. And I think I think also they don't ask if Lily speaks English. They ask does she speak English? Mm. So she's still an object within that space. Yeah. So it's not like do you speak English? I think there's one scene where it's like do you and then the other one is mm -hmm. does she? So she's still, you know, and it's very clear she's the only Chinese woman there. And the women are kind to her. Yeah. Like they are, they are very kind to her. She's still somewhat of a novelty though. And it's, it's, it's so sad for her because she's, her nerves are just at the breaking point by the time she enters this club. Like she's so stressed out about, she's got the fake ID. So she's worried about what's going to happen legally if she gets caught. She's snuck out at night. She's with Kath. So she's all hepped up about that. Um, she's in this completely strange new environment where she knows something's going to shift in her life. She knows like, and, and there's a lot of, there's not a lot of, but there's shame as well. Like there's a line in there when she's at the club where I forget what the reference is completely, but um, she says she knows that something's shameful. So there's an element of shame that she's feeling at this time because like, she knows that 
there's something that her parents would disapprove of that she's about to do. And then she's hit with all of these China doll stuff. Do you speak English? So it's like, it's just another kind of thing she's got to deal with on her journey. But in that particular one, she's got no one to share it with. Like she has no one to share those feelings with because Kath really won't understand. She can't say it to Shirley and kind of say like, this was the experience. So she can't even fully kind of talk it through with anyone. So she is in that scene with people, but isolated. Right. And she's with people, but isolated in the inverse way that she's used to being with people and isolated. Yeah. She's used to being with people who look like her and who share the immigrant experience, but she can't talk to them about the questions that she's now having about her sexuality and who she's attracted to. And so at no point in this book, even by the end, does Lily find a place or a person that allows her to be seen and comfortable and just kind of let her guard down in every way. And I think like, I I guess now in 2022, we can say how great it is that we have more contemporary representation so that a teenager like Lily would at least be able to find other stories of people who both look like her, grew up like her, and share in some of her questions about their sexuality. But in 1954, that just wasn't happening. Yeah. And that that actually brings up an interesting point about how the information was shared, which kind of comes through in the book. And this is something I don't really know about, like, because I'm not super familiar with the time period or the culture, but uh, all the coded information that the women are sharing and how there's a scene where Lily kind of says, like, it's it, it's like they're speaking code, like she doesn't really yeah. understand the people and, and, and the terminology and what's going on. But I did think that Lowe made some interesting points about how that kind of safe space information was shared and how you connected with people in a safe way that I still think people like obviously people today still need to do like find out who's who's safe like can I trust you with this part of me can I trust you to be myself but also physically and emotionally can I be safe around you yeah and the importance of language and as book people as as writers I'm sure we we I mean I could talk forever about the importance of language but Lily learns a whole new language at the Telegraph Club. And at first, she's just listening to these women talk. And they use language that is safe for them. um, And she has to learn what that looks like. And I, I think they also are taking back language that was and has been unfortunately stolen from them and used as slurs over the years. And so um, to see them like take that back and own it was really cool. And I think while we're talking about the importance of language, we have to talk about the book, like the book that kind of started it all. And Melinda Lowe was quoted in a couple of interviews talking about how books were such an important part of her own young experience um, as a queer teenager because she would go to the bookstore and find romance novels and she would look for, for stories that resonated with her. She also talks about how her young experience with gay bars helped her write this book, but that's neither here nor there. Um, (laughs) But Lily goes to a drugstore and she's going through all of the like pulpy genre novels on one of those, I'm sure like spinning racks that we've all seen. And she comes across one that has two women. And while Kath is huge in getting the ball rolling with Lily's awakening, this book is also really huge. And they kind of come into her life at the same time. So much so that Lily actually brings Kath to that drugstore at one point because she wants to show her this book. And Melinda Lowe has also talked a lot about how she worries about banned books. Um, And I think that pertains to what we see in this 
in this book in the drugstore because she talks about how a lot of her books have been banned and how she in some ways is almost like less concerned with books that are on a, on an official banned books list and more about sort of the silent censorship that happens because of yeah because of the conversation around banning books and and she worries that teachers and librarians are just going to be too afraid to buy books that might push the limits on what's like quote appropriate in their school districts just because they don't even want to like go there and so i personally like as a book person of course just appreciate the fact that this book plays a big role in Lily's journey. And also it it creates the space for a, like a meta conversation with the author about the importance of books and the importance of representation in books for teens like Lily and taking those books away from teens in 2022 is, is really dangerous. And to make the gatekeepers who are responsible for choosing those books so afraid of like what might happen to them if they make certain subjects available that's scary. And, and I know that you don't live in the U.S., but I'm curious, like, what your experience is about that and, and what your thoughts are. I mean, I think banned books, banned media in general are, are a global issue. They're not just a U.S. issue. I completely agree. I, I actually don't even know what to add to it. It's just, um, please don't ban books. Representation is important. In this book, though, in Last Night at the Telegraph, though, I think it's interesting to point out that the media, the women are consuming about queer and lesbian women, the women in those media do not end up well. So the book that Lily reads in the bookstore, and there's an interesting side note here. So she wants to bring Kath in to show her the book to kind of tease her out about like, yeah. are, do you feel the same way about this book as I do? But the book's gone. And then she has to articulate with her own words to Kath. And it's just, she's just struggling so hard to actually say, say what the book's about. Whereas, you know, she could just hand the book. But at the end of that book, the, the character in the book, I think, ends up her husband commits her or something. And then other women are talking about this movie that ends up with someone committing suicide. So even within those books, the representation that she's reading yeah. is not obviously the representation we would love to see for her, but I think it's probably very common for the time. But it's representation is good. But even within those those where she's seeing herself or or part of herself, she's still seeing it through what society is kind of deeming acceptable. And for women loving women, that is not deemed acceptable for the writers and creators of that, what she's consuming. Mm -hmm. But yeah, but don't ban books. Don't ban books, please. Um, don't ban books. I really want to hand it to us because we have done an exceptional job of not spoiling this. Oh my God. It, do you know how hard this It's is? really hard. Like, I really, because I really want to talk about the I ending know. a lot because so much happens in those final scenes. Okay, but I know what we can yeah. talk about that will get us away from that. And it is the in-between chapters yes. of the perspective yes. of the mom, the aunt, the father, the mom, the aunt, the father. I think that's it. Frankie too. I think Frankie, the aunt's husband. Maybe, maybe. but definitely yeah, focus on the yeah, definitely those three. and and her aunt who she's very close to. Yeah. Which I, I, to me, they did not add a lot to the story. They brought me out of Lily's story, but I think that is because I am older and a mother now. Mm. So I have a kid. So when I'm reading the story as an adult, I very, very, very definitely see the points of view and perspectives of the adults in Lily's life and what they're trying to do. Are they doing it well? No. Should they be doing it? Probably not. Do I see how they feel trapped and scared? A hundred percent. So I wonder if those chapters are in there to humanize those adult characters and show them um, 
you know, more as people who have also experienced love and racism and all these things. So they're not quite the evil characters in Lily's story. Like, what did you think? Yeah, I agree. They didn't add a lot for me. And I usually love a flashback and I love different POV characters. It didn't add a lot. And I'm sort of in that sweet spot where I'm not a parent, but I'm not a teenager. And I understood that everything that her parents were doing for her was like, it was all well-intentioned. Like they just wanted to protect her. All well-intentioned. And I also think like, while Lily is Chinese American, like she in many ways sees herself as an American teenager while her parents, you know, her dad actually was born and raised in China and came to the U.S., Her mother grew up in the U.S., but I think was othered even more because she grew up even earlier. So we're seeing their experiences and like how they felt even more different and how the stakes were even higher for them. And so it does give you a little bit more empathy for them. And I I agree with you, but like, I I don't know. And I don't know that teens, I would imagine that some teens may have like skipped through that, those sections. Mm. And as far as the ending goes, yeah, I don't want to get into details, but I will say that like, and Melinda Lowe has talked openly about the fact that it's not like some happy ending. There's no like riding off into the sunset. And she has spoken in interviews about how like that was intentional because she is setting these characters in a world where a happy ending isn't something that they can expect. It's just something that they can hope for. Yeah. And the only less than positive reviews that I've read in my research about this book is like people were upset that the ending was as open-ended as it was and at the risk of like getting into the details. I'll say that I think I disagree. Like I did not really anticipate in this world that Lily and Kath would get to ride off into the sunset. And I think that that's kind of the point. Yeah, I I agree with you. I wasn't expecting, I wasn't upset with the open-ended nature of the ending. I would have liked another chapter before, after the final chapter and before the epilogue. I, I really felt I wanted to know so much more. I can see why there's not one, but I was kind of greedy for it. Yeah, I I mean, if I put my writer hat on and I think about like, this book must have just been so exhausting to write. Oh my god! And gosh. I just imagine that Melinda Lowe got to the last chapter and she's like, I'm tired. Like, I'm done. <laughs> yeah. I can't do another chapter. And it just leaves it very open-ended, which some readers like, some don't. But on the whole, Lily, I'm curious how Last Night at the Telegraph Club compares to the books that you read when you were a teenager, the media that you oh consumed when you were a teenager, and what you think that difference says about the progress that we are making in the way that we talk to teens about all kinds of things. A book like this would have been not even, I, I legitimately could not imagine being a teenager and, and finding a book like this. When I was a teenager, the books that were coming out were, were the books I was reading they were pretty, like, I mean, they dealt with a lot of dark things, but at the time it was, because I'm probably a bit older, divorce. Divorce yeah. was big. Eating disorders were huge. Like eating disorders were huge in the books I was reading. Mom's going back to work and how a dad would feel about that. You know, teenage pregnancy, that was a big one. Different sexualities, I couldn't, I can't think of one. But also I went to a Catholic okay. school. So I went to a Catholic school, which, you know, maybe the library could have been, maybe, a little bit edited down, yep. but I, you know, I look at the books my kid reads now, uh, and I look at books like this, and I am so glad that, you know, kids who are seeking can have, like, the internet's great, you know, for a lot of things, the internet's great, it helps you find your community, it helps you find people, when you're like, am I the only person like this, and you feel so isolated and alone in the world, 
there's going to be someone out there and you can get first person perspective. There is something about how a perspective is rendered in fiction that to me makes it even more powerful. And to be able to read about yourself in a, a book, you know, when you, you are not like I'm biracial. So when I was growing up also, there weren't like, I, there weren't any books about people with my background. So when I got older and those books started like either coming out or I started finding them, it's totally possible they were there and I just couldn't find them. Being able to find and read those books was, there is such a deep sense of being seen that I don't think people who are used to being seen everywhere in the advertisements they see, in the newscasts they see, in broadcasts, um, in all the music videos or whatever, I don't think maybe can understand as much. So I'm glad that kids have a chance to read about an experience like Lily and hopefully feel not alone. Yes, I agree. And I don't want to project or speak for you, but I, I'm getting the sense that we're like, this is a resounding recommendation. Like everybody read this book. Oh, please read this so book. Good. Yeah. Like, you know, but give yourself time to really immerse yourself in the book. I, that I would, that would be my absolute recommendation. Because like you, I was like, oh, this will, I didn't quite realize like how long it would take me. And you want to give yourself time to really linger mm over some of the phrasing and some of the scenes and maybe put it down and take a break and think about it because it is a really, it's a pretty straightforward narrative, but it's a complicated yeah. book. Read it even if you don't usually read YA. It's excellent. Yeah. yeah, I think it's great. But other than this book, what have you been reading, Lily, that you would recommend to our listeners? I know you are you said you were in editing mode, so I know that makes reading difficult. I am. But even over the last yes. couple of months, anything that you've loved, feel free to share. I'm actually, so the last couple of months, I have been rereading some books. So Tamsin Muir is a, a science fiction slash fantasy writer who, her books are Gideon the Ninth, Harrow the Ninth, and Nona the Ninth has just come out. So I was reading the first two books to remind me where I was in the world for Nona, which I just bought. And I cannot recommend these books enough. It's um, Lesbian Necromancers in Space. Okay. Uh, again, they're also teenagers. Some people I think will not find the, like they're these epic, epic books written in this very hilarious voice that it's so jarring and it's so good. Like, she is such a creative writer. So Gideon the Ninth is basically almost like um, a locked room mystery. Okay. There's a bunch of people who are stuck on this planet. People are dying. What's going on? But there's also some, like, a lot of extra stuff going on. But that at heart, it's kind of like a mystery, and they have to figure it out. Hair of the Ninth, I've read it twice, still cannot tell you. Like, the first time I read it, I was like, I did what? Like, <laughs> I was so confused i loved and i loved it and i was like i got no idea what's going on so i went online and the first review i saw was this person going first i love this book second i sat down to write this and realized i have no idea what happened <laughs> because it's you know it's so it's fascinating it's a fascinating book it's like i'm gonna have to read it a third time i think and nona is third in the series so i i highly recommend these books they are so good and what else? I haven't been reading a lot of rom-coms because I write rom-coms. Um, so when I'm editing, I just try to um, steer a bit away from them. So I'm not overly influenced or feel super bad about myself. So, <laughs> so those have been, those books have kind of been where, 
where I've been. Yeah. Well, speaking of rom-coms and like definitely not speaking of you feeling bad about yourself because I think you should feel great about yourself and about your debut, the stand-in and also about the comeback. Let's talk about your work. Um, Can you share anything about it with us? And also like anything you can tell us about what's coming up, maybe what you're working on in those edits. Sure. So The Stand-In was my debut rom-com. It came out, uh, I have a dual deal. So my books come out first in audio. And then a few months later, they come out in print. So currently The Stand-In is out in print and audio. The Comeback is only out in audio and will be out in print in May. The Stand-In is about a uh, biracial Chinese white woman who lives in Toronto who ends up taking a gig as a celebrity doppelganger for a world-famous Chinese movie star. And her leading man is also there and she has to deal with him. So it is, uh, it deals, you know, with celebrity and the funness of that, as well as um, racial identity, mental health, friendships. Yeah. Sam's, I really like Sam. Uh, Sam is the the male lead. And The Comeback is my second rom-com and it is based in Toronto and in Seoul. And it's about an ambitious lawyer who falls in love with a K-pop idol. Ooh, juicy. Yes. And you don't have to love K-pop or even like K-pop or know anything about K-pop to read the book. Ari, I deliberately created her as um, an entry for a reader into that industry. So she knows nothing about it when she meets Jihoon. And she learns kind of as she goes. Now, you have a very cool audiobook narrator attached to your books, too. Can you tell us about her? I'm a fan. I, I do. <laughs> so my books are narrated by Philippa Sue, who was the original Eliza in Hamilton, which you might have heard of. Oh. Um, I hear it was somewhat popular. Legit, I got, I, I got Disney just to watch the <laughs> like Hamilton on Disney. Yeah, so she narrates it, and she is so good. Um, I also fangirled like a lot, yeah. but I think she, she hits the voices so yeah. well. She just, she adds so much brightness and nuance and depth to the characters that I, I'm so appreciative. I think she just did a fantastic job. Well, congratulations on these exciting rom-coms and I'm looking forward to seeing what happens next. I will make sure to link to all of your work in the show notes. I will also link to the resources that I mentioned about last night, the Telegraph Club, your recommendations. There will be a lot of good stuff over in those show notes listeners. Lily, it was so nice spending this time with you. Thank you for having this discussion with me. Oh, thank you for having me. And uh, yes, I absolutely, everybody, please read this read book. It. Buy it, read it, love it. You're, you love will it. love it. I promise. That's a guarantee. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.